0: Thank you, Annette. It's good to be with you this morning and see so many of you here. How many of you, by chance, already attended like a sunrise service this morning? You guys are my kind of crowd. How many of you would be more likely to attend an Easter sunset service than an Easter sunrise? Okay, that's, that's where I'm at too. And when there's no sun here today, is there? You know, I, Bill, I saw you last week preaching and the sun was coming through and you were having to move back and forth. So I like to think this morning the glory cloud is following me, Bill, and and uh, I, I'm not dealing with it yet, but we may see here in a little bit. Uh, I've had an interesting week. I was gone last weekend. I was up in Bend, Oregon, where my son and his family live. And on Thursday, they gave birth to their third son, Lincoln Robert Swaggerty. And so uh, I got to be there... <coughs> In Bend for that, not in the hospital room, but we got to see on Friday through the glass and and meet him, and uh, and Lois is still up there. That's why she's not with us today. She's up there till Tuesday, uh, just trying to help out and and be whatever help she can be. When I when I got the news and I posted on social media that our third you know grandson up there, our fifth total was was born. There was one of our friends who should have known better, who said, "What a blessing." To have a baby born on Easter week, and my response to her was, "You know Lois well enough to know that the favorite the thing she's most excited about is that he was born on April Fool's Day, and uh, <clears throat> that kid is going to have a lifetime, as long as Lois is around, he'll have a lifetime of memories for being born on April Fool's Day. For her favorite holiday by far uh, is April Fool's Day. So uh, it's great to be here today on on celebrating." The Easter story, we're going to be looking at that story in John chapter 20 this morning. And uh, we're going to talk about a lady that had, in many ways, had a roller coaster life, had given up hope, and had finally had her hope renewed, only to feel as if it was dashed again, and then the resurrection renewed it once more. I don't know if you have a favorite line that starts out, you know you're getting old when... Uh, Everyone seems to have those kind of lines. My favorite line is, you know you're getting old when you reach down to tie your shoes and you think to yourself, is there anything else I should be doing while I'm down here? (laughs) I've actually had that thought come to my mind a few times over the last couple of years. Is there anything else I need to be doing while I'm I'm bent over and down here? Uh, One of the more poignant expressions of that phrase, you know you're getting old, is this. You know you're getting old when regrets have taken the place of dreams in your life. And there's no number attached to that, is there? That could be in your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, but it also could be in your 20s and 30s. When the things that you dreamed your life would become suddenly just seem so far out of reach for you and your mind is dominated not by dreams, but by regrets that's when you know you're getting old. I think that's true of the woman that we're going to be talking about this morning in John chapter 20. We refer to her as Mary Magdalene. There's actually several Marys in the the New Testament. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And Mary Magdalene is a a lady that appears several times in, in, the, uh, in the gospel story, she was part of Jesus's ministry team, if you want to call it that. She traveled around with Jesus. They, they provided, these, this team did, the needs that Jesus would have from time to time. Uh, they, they would provide for that. We're also told about Mary Magdalene, that she had seven demons that Jesus had cast out of her life. We're not told how old she was. If she was a peer of Jesus, she would have been in her 30s, maybe 20s, maybe 40s. This was a woman, though, who had known tragedy and had had her dreams, whatever her dreams were as a teenager, those were such a far distant thing in her mind and in her life. And Jesus came along and cast out those demons, and she became a follower of Christ, where we're not given the name in Luke chapter seven of the lady that came in and broke the alabaster jar on Jesus's feet and washed his feet with that perfume. Uh, the disciples were all upset, but you remember what Jesus said. He said, she's been forgiven much and she loves much. She's been forgiven much and she loves much. And, and most commentators think that that was, that was Mary Magdalene who actually uh, broke that jar there before Jesus. She came uh, from the city of Magdala, which was on the western shore of the Galilean Sea up in the northern part of Israel. And Magdala was kind of a what today we might call a city like Acapulco. It was a city that was a city of luxury, but there was also a lot of corruption and immorality there. There's a long-standing tradition. We don't know if it's if it's true or not, and the New Testament doesn't say this specifically, but there's a longstanding tradition that Mary Magdalene had, had uh, lived a life of prostitution at one point. Uh, but even if that's not the case, she came from an incredibly broken background as she encountered Christ. And Jesus put took that wrecked life and put it all back together. And it was this one, <clears throat> this one lady That in John chapter 20, we find that Jesus chose to appear to first. There could only be one first. And Jesus could have chosen anyone to appear to first. But he chose to appear to Mary Magdalene. And so I want to talk about that incredible day that Mary had uh, there that first day of the week. Uh, It starts out with uh, what I would just call desperation. In verses 1 and 2 of John 20, it says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That would have been John, who's writing this story. And said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, And we don't know where they have put him. Now Mary was going to the tomb that morning uh, to, if if possible, take care of the body of Christ. And here she finds that that body is no longer there. The one that she had loved so much because she had been forgiven so much uh, was nowhere to be found. And she was desperate at that point. Well, the desperation gives gives way to really despair as the story goes on. In verse 3, it says, So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. That's kind of bragging here. John's talking about him being faster than, than Peter. He reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, and went straight into the tomb and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. And finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside and he saw and believed. Parenthetically John says they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They're still trying to put together the story of all that Jesus had told them. And it says, Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And she said, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. At that point, uh, she has this desperation. She just wants more than anything else to find the body of Christ, and it's not there. Well, Coupled with this desperation is the third thing that I see in the passage, and that's a blindness that she has. It says in verse 14, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. She was blind to it being Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. She didn't recognize him at that point. Uh, We we should say, just parenthetically, that nobody recognized Jesus when he rose from the dead. So she's not unusual in that sense. I think what what they would see and experience in the resurrected body of Jesus would be akin to looking like a picture of someone that's 25 years old, you know, or the picture's 25 years old. And you're like, I, I think I know that person. But it's like, it's like years and years later, and, and you're not quite sure. It may have been that kind of thing. But she didn't recognize him right away. She was blind to that. And, and she was so focused on what she wanted to do. She was lost in her despair and in that blindness. But here's what happens next. Jesus said to her, Mary. And in amazement, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Jesus, uh, his relationship and love for Mary was probably out of depth where he had never called her woman before. He had probably always called her Mary. And so when he first addresses her and he says to her woman, why are you crying? Who is it looking for? She didn't connect with even the voice of Jesus. But as soon as he said Mary, uh, she recognized who it was. The power of being known is an incredible power that opened her eyes at that point. I was thinking this week back to an event that happened about 20 years ago in our house. We had a young man who was the same age as our kids, and we had a, they were all in high school, and we had a dinner that night. And uh, he was in a particularly vulnerable place because he was an only child whose father had died when he was uh, not even a year old. And his, he had grown up as a, as a child of a single mom, the rest of the rest of his life up to that point. And his mom was sick in the hospital. So sick, in fact, that the doctors were trying to explain to him that there was no hope for her. And they needed to take her off the the machines that were supporting her life at that point. He was convinced that she wasn't ready to die. He was convinced that she still had life left in her. And as it turned out, she rallied and lived another two or three years. She, she had several things that were wrong with her, and, and eventually she died two or three years later, but not at that point. That evening, though, he was at our house beside himself because he had no one to turn to. He didn't know how to stand up to the doctors as a 17 year old and say, No, keep my mom alive. If she can just get to next week, she'll be okay. That's what he was convinced but he had no one who was kind of in his corner. We had him over that night uh, for dinner. And I don't know uh, what the occasion was. I do know we had a house full of people. And I know we had a house full of people because Lois had to break out the china for dinner. I don't know if it's how it is in your house, but the the wedding china doesn't come out until all the Coriel and all the stoneware is all distributed and you still need more. And then you get out the wedding china at that point. And we had had this china not used it all that much. One of the things that Lois had done with the china way back when she got it, you know, it was registered and people would buy three plates or a serving plate or a gravy bowl or a sugar dish or whatever it might be. Whenever we got one of those gifts, Lois had taken nail polish and she turned it over and she wrote the name of the person who had given that particular item to us at our wedding. And over the years, as we used that and watched it, the letters would peel off. And so sometimes, you know, a name, a last name that would have, you know, eight letters might only have three. And when we would break it out, we'd play this game where we'd try to figure out, well, who gave us this? Who are these three letters? You know, it's like Wheel of Fortune or something like that we're, we're playing. And um, the, um, uh, that particular night, Lois had plates, she was passing out to China. She was dealing them off the bottom, away from her. And she came to this young man and handed him a plate. And and he just kind of looked up with this look of mystery on his face, because he said, why is my mom's name on that plate? Why is my mom's name on that plate? The reason was because his grandparents had given us that plate. And this was his mother's maiden name. But as he was handed that plate, he realized these are people in my moment of need that know me. They go way back with me. They know my family name. And it was just one of those kind of magical things that you go, how in the world does that happen? Other than the fact that God wanted to impress upon him that special relationship. And when Jesus is in the garden with Mary and he turns to her and he says, Mary, it's that same kind of thing. He wants her to understand that you're known. I know you and I love you. I know you. And Mary just grabbed on to Jesus at that point. And, and Jesus tells her, you know, you're going to have to let go. It wasn't that he couldn't be touched. There were other times after his resurrection that he asked, he told people, you know, go ahead and touch me, feel the wounds and, and that sort of thing. So it wasn't that he couldn't be touched, but in effect, he was saying, I'm going to be here for a while. You know, You can let me go. I'm not going to go away quite yet. But he was also telling her that things are going to be different. From this point forward, Uh, things have have entered into a different chapter uh, after the resurrection, and it's not going to quite be the same. And he's no longer Rabboni, but he's going to be her Lord. Well, the story ends with Mary going back to the disciples in joy. Verse 18, she went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. What a day for Mary to be that first one to see the Lord. What, we, what can we take away this morning from this story? What can we learn from it? I think one of the things that God would want us to learn and to really embrace is that, friends, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Uh, we look at Mary as one who was so needy, whose life had been so transformed, uh, one that had been touched so deeply by the work of Jesus Uh, but we're all in the same boat. Mary was, it's striking that she was the one that Jesus chose because in one sense, she was on the outside of every inside-outside category the world had. You know, if you want to know who the insiders are or the outsiders, in almost every category that you would line up, Mary was on the outside. She was poor. She had had this... uh, uh, Lifetime of demon being demon-possessed. Perhaps she had lived a life that others would have considered immoral. The least likely candidate for Jesus to choose, and yet he chose her uh, to be the one. He chose uh, and he chooses the Marys of this world, friends, so that all the rest of us non-Marys can get the point <laughs> that Jesus Christ came not to save the righteous, as he said, but I've come to save sinners. And when Jesus said those words, he wasn't speaking objectively that there is this category of people that, that are righteous and don't need Jesus. And then there are those who are sinners and do need Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying subjectively, there's people who think I'm, I'm righteous enough on my own. I can do it by myself. And, and they don't see their need as those who are sinners see their need and And Jesus uh, is saying here that Mary knows that she's a sinner. she's been forgiven much, so she loves much, and that's why she was there that morning because she wanted uh, to express that love to Jesus even in his death. She wanted to care for his body. <clears throat> There's a famous um, sixty minutes episode that happened decades ago when Mike Wallace was still leading uh, sixty minutes and he had a way of bringing out just really poignant things in, in the lives of people. He was interviewing once a man by the name of Yahil Noor. And Yahil Deneur was a, a Holocaust survivor who actually testified against Adolf Eichmann in the Nuremberg trials. And they played a clip on the 60 minute segment of Yahil Deneur actually coming into the courtroom. And the incredible thing about that clip is that as he walked across the front of the courtroom and walked in front of Adolf Eichmann, he collapsed onto the floor. He just fainted onto the floor and collapsed. And Mike Wallace played this clip and he said, "Yahil, would you please tell us what was going through your mind when you entered into that courtroom? And he said this, he said, I saw Adolf Eichmann there and he wasn't in his, his Nazi uniform. He was there in a coat and a tie. And what struck me is that he looked so ordinary. He looked so ordinary. And he said, I realized at that moment that fundamentally there was no difference between me and him. And it shook me to my roots and I fainted because he, he realized that ultimately we're all in the same boat. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident, had a different way of expressing it. He, he talked about the line that we always like to draw in life between good and evil. We like to draw these lines. And he says our, our default way of doing that is always to put the line out there. We're always on the side of good. On the other side of that line might be uh, someone who's chosen a different lifestyle or someone from a different political party or whatever, whatever way we're slicing up life. We tend to put things that we think are evil on the other side of that line. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn said very poignantly, he said, the line between good and evil goes down the heart of every human being. We each have that capability left to our own devices uh, to be as evil as the next person. Marys know that. Marys know that. Do you know that this morning? Do you embrace that? Do you understand that? Or have you been fooled in life by what you've achieved or the position that you have in life or your status or maybe a feeling of moral superiority? That faith even is not of ourselves; it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. If you're saved this morning, if you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, it's something that's been given to you by God. Even that faith is a gift. As we start that relationship out, so often we get it backwards, and we think that God does something for us, and our gift back to God is our is our faith. No, it's not how it works. Faith is part of the package of what God gives to us so that we can be in relationship with him. And that faith is something that we need to cultivate even as we grow in our walk with the Lord. And and here Mary needs that kind of faith as she's standing in the midst of the greatest sign of God's love and God's power, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and she sees it as disaster. She can't get beyond the fact that she can't find the body to the point where she realizes this was what Jesus said would happen, that his father would raise him from the dead. Are we, how often do we run around just forgetting those kind of promises that God makes uh, to us where we need more faith? God hasn't abandoned you this morning, friends. Uh, sometimes you just can't see him sometimes it takes a harder look to see him. But he's there, and we need faith, and God loves to give it. I think the final thing I want you to see from this text this morning is that uh, Jesus lives, we serve a risen Savior, and he loves us still. He lives, and he loves us still. And when we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the things we need to realize is that it's not totally unique as a resurrection. There were other people in God's word who were raised from the dead. Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. There are other people that were raised from the dead. What's unique about Jesus is that he didn't die again. And all those other people did. And Jesus is talking about that when he says to Mary, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And when we think about that, we may be tempted to think that what Jesus is talking about here is his retirement plan, you know, that he did his time on earth, he did what he was, he did his job, he came down, he saved the world, you know, and now I'm going back to the Father and I'm going to sit at the right hand and just relax and retire for all the good that I've done. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, as we look in other portions of Scripture, we see Jesus describing what he's doing right now, not as being <clears throat> retired, but he's actively involved praying for us. He's interceding for us. His love for us is not something that, that uh, came to a culmination and sort of ended at the cross. It's something that continues. And he continues to pray and meet us in his mind, in his heart. He meets us where we are in the disappointments of our lives in the discouragements of our lives. He meets us there and he intercedes to us, for us, the writer of Hebrews says, to the uttermost because he loves us. And we can have that relationship now with a living Savior because he has ascended. When he ascended, he did something greater than he would have had he just stayed alive. He sent his spirit and he went to the Father and he prays for you. He's praying for you right now by name. He's praying for us and expressing that ongoing love for us and it's a relationship that we can have with him. One of the um, uh, hymns of the church that, is a beloved hymn going, I'm going way back now. Those of you who are younger may never have even heard of this song, but if you go back and ask uh, uh, boomers and people that are older, you know, what's your favorite hymn? uh, A lot of people will say, well, amazing grace, but pretty near the top of that chart used to be this song that's called in the garden. And we, I remember singing that as a child uh, and it's a, it's a song about someone coming to the garden and having a, a communion with, with the Lord. And I always uh, wondered what that song was about. I grew up in the city. Uh, I didn't have a garden, you know, kind of place I could go to and, and experience anything like that. What does it mean to be in the garden? Um, I I kind of, as I grew older, I, I think I got kind of hardened to that song whenever anyone at the at the church would request, we have a request night and they'd say, let's sing in the garden. And I'm, I would kind of just roll my eyes like, what, why are we singing this sappy, sentimental song about being in the garden with, with Jesus? Uh, and it was only about maybe, you know, when I was in my 30s, I finally did some research on where, the, where in the heck did this song come from? And it was written by a guy by the name of Charles Austin Miles in 1912. And he wrote it in the basement of a home in New Jersey that didn't have any windows. Okay, so he's not in a garden when he's writing this song. But what happened to him is he he opened up his Bible and it opened up to John chapter 20. And as he meditated on this story that we've been looking at this morning, He wrote the words to that song, which have become so special to so many. And the song begins, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. You see, this was a song that he wrote about Mary. It's not a song he's saying, you know, go to the garden and have this mystical experience with Jesus. He's saying, no, this is what happened. This is a fact that Jesus, uh, this is one woman's story that she went to the garden. One of the other verses he speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet. The birds hush their singing and the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. And here's the chorus. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. There was no other first. Mary was the first, and the joy that they shared was one that was not uh, allowed for anyone else to enjoy. But friends, do you want that? Do you ask for that? We serve and we live for a risen savior. It's the greatest gift we can have in this life is to have that fellowship with him, whatever you need, whether it's faith in the midst of a time of confusion in your life, whether it's love because you just right now feel alienated from others and so alone, whether it's hope because you're facing just tremendous discouragement for one reason or another in your life. Uh, Jesus says, come to him this morning. He can give you that hope. He can give you that faith. And he certainly wants to give you that love. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that you raised your son from the dead. We thank you that you've given to us the gift of eternal life because he's merely the first fruits. He's the first one. And and we also have the hope that because he conquered death, he conquered it for us. And we have the hope of the resurrection in our lives. I pray, Lord, that that hope would be something that we wouldn't be blinded to. I pray that it would be something that we would uh, understand and we would feel in our hearts this morning your individual love for us, that you know our name, you know our history, you've been with us, and there is so much more that you want to give. We pray for that gift in your son's name. Amen.